0: Well, keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 14. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, And you heard the scripture that Aaliyah read. This is a really strange thing that that, uh, Mark does. You've probably noticed it before as we've gone through Mark's gospel. He has something that scholars, for lack of a better term, they call this a Markan sandwich. He puts these strange stories together and it's like, Mark, bro, what's going on here, man? Did you... You have an insomnia when you're writing this? What's going on? He seems to be all over the place because he starts out in chapter 14 talking about uh, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And then he transitions into this really uh, beautiful story about Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus. And then he goes right back to the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot and the conspiracy and the murder. And it's like, what the heck? So there's this sandwich, the meat we're really going to focus on today, but the bread on the top and the bottom is conspiracy, deceit, hypocrisy, murder. It sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? What's Mark doing here? I think what he's doing is he's given us some perspective. He's given us some contrast. Here's these men. When I say the word Pharisee, everyone in here conjures up this image and it's probably not a good one, Right? even though the Pharisees were the religiously conservative people in their day, and by name they were supposed to purify the worship of Yahweh and be the set-apart ones. But what they ended up being was self-righteous hypocrites who were responsible for the murder of Jesus. So when you think of the word Pharisee, there's a legacy there. That's the title of our sermon today. When you think of scribe, lawyer, Sadducee, Pharisee, New Testament-wise, you think of betrayal. When you hear the word Judas Iscariot, What do you think of? How many people have you met named Judas, by the way? Probably not many. If you if anybody in here named their kid Judas, the word's beautiful, it means praised. Even though the word is beautiful, hardly anybody names their kid Judas. Why? Because it has, to some people, such a stigma attached to it. Mary is a beautiful name, but it means bitter. Did you know that? The word Mary actually means bitter, and yet Hundreds of thousands of people have named their daughters Mary, because Mary is a beautiful word in the New Testament, because you have Mary Magdalene, you have Mary the mother of Jesus, and then you have Mary of Bethany. So this whole passage is about legacy, and Mark is contrasting the legacy of the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the religious leaders, and Judas, the the false pretend follower who was actually a hypocrite and betrayed the Son of God for a few pieces of silver. He's contrasting that with Mary. All of them leave a legacy. And I would say this to you. Everyone in this room leaves a legacy. My wife and I went back and forth. She said, you can't call this legacy because people think of somebody that's old and about to die. And I said, but that's not what it means. And she said, it doesn't matter. That's what people are going to think. But that's not what I mean, okay? It doesn't matter how old you are. You're starting to build a legacy right now. You will be remembered for something later on in life. Um... Three points today. One is true worship is costly because this is about a legacy of worship. Okay, everybody in this room is a worshiper, whether you knew that or not. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're a worshiper. There's something that you give your life to that defines you, that adds value and meaning, something that is your identity. Because before worship is an activity, it's actually an identity. It's what makes you who you are. We're all worshipers. Even the famous atheist who took his own life, David Foster Wallace, at a uh, commencement speech, he said something incredible for an unbeliever to confess. He said, we're all worshipers. You don't turn, worship is not a button that you turn off and on. We're always worshiping. And he said this, he said, but you better choose carefully the object of your worship because whatever it is, if it's not God, it will eat you alive. He said that, an unbeliever, an atheist said that. He said, if you worship beauty, then when you get older and the wrinkles come and you see crow's feet, You'll feel worthless. You'll feel ugly. Your worship of beauty will eat you alive. If you worship wealth and fame and power, when the stock market drops and when your assets and your, uh, when the stuff you own <laughs> starts to tarnish, you're going to feel poor and impoverished and, and worthless, right? If you worship your health, when you start getting arthritis, uh, or maybe you're an extreme sports app av- you you uh, do the whole box fitness thing, whatever it is, you better be careful what you choose to worship because it will eat you alive, unless it's Jesus, right? Because worship is, anything apart from God is idolatry. And the thing you see about idols in the Bible is that they demand sacrifice. Idols are very demanding. They come to take your life, not to give you life, like Jesus did. So this is a legacy of true worship. Everybody in here is a worshiper, Everybody in here is building a legacy that you will be remembered by. So the outline is one, and hopefully it's true worship will be your legacy, like Mary's was. So true worship is costly, true worship is perceptive, and true worship is provocative. Provocative. Um, But everyone in here will be remembered by something. You remember some of these? Some of these are funny. You remember the Star Wars kid? That poor guy. (laughs) Anybody remember him? That's that's his legacy that he's going to be remembered by. Is uh, somebody secretly getting a hold of that recording of his? Some of the memes, Steve Jobs, Emma Keller playing Gandalf, and the Harry Potter kid. Everyone is going to be remembered by something. What will you be remembered by? That's what Mark is doing here. He's shoving all these things together. Um, And look, you don't have to go very far either in history or in the Bible to see that some people's legacy—it stinks. It's terrible. In fact, I was reading. I want to read this uh, to you. I was reading this morning to Sarah a king's legacy from the Old Testament, and his name uh, was Jehoram. Now Jehoram was the son of Jezebel, so we're not expecting much already, right? I mean, his his—I've never heard anybody named Jezebel either. My father-in-law had a cat he named Jezebel once, but that's not a name you hear because she was basically a witch in the Old Testament who was a queen, who was an idolater, and she took idolatry to a whole new level, her and her husband Ahab. So King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, had a son, their firstborn son, and his name was Jehoram. And uh, he grew up seeing gross idolatry as a way of life. You can imagine the legacy that was handed to him by his mom and dad, and he continued that legacy. He carried it to new heights. The Bible says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He forsook the Lord. He abandoned God, the Lord of his fathers. He made high places, which means in the Bible, places where you worship false gods and goddesses. He made them. As the king of Israel, God's people, he made high places. He built them for his people to worship false gods and goddesses. It says that he enticed all of Jerusalem into whoredom, and he made Judah go astray. And on top of that, he killed all of his brothers because he felt like they would threaten his kingdom and usurp his throne. So he killed them, he knocked them off. And this is what the Bible says about his legacy. Check this out. This is the the epitaph on on his tombstone, okay? From God. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor, like the fires made for his fathers, he was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. I mean, just just stop for a minute and imagine that's your legacy. Terrible person, terrible father, terrible husband, terrible person. Uh, led people astray. Was a murderer. Was a hypocrite. At his funeral, nobody came. Can you imagine that? There's a funeral conducted in your honor and nobody shows up maybe except some old guy with a cat who's just confused and thought it was somebody else's funeral. Can you imagine that? That's your legacy. Nobody regretted your passing. In fact, maybe there was a party in the streets. We're all building a legacy and that's what we see really in this passage. So three qualities of of true worship okay three qualities of true worship and listen in today's message i'm going to use a lot of illustrations and examples and people from history you may or may not have heard of and i'm usually not comfortable uh, putting a whole lot of that in a message but i am comfortable today and here's the reason if you look at verse nine in this story the whole story is about jesus honoring the legacy of a true worshiper and i think he'd be okay if we did that today look at verse nine Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman, Mary, has done will be told in memory of her. This is the only time that it's okay when you're preaching the gospel. Who's the gospel about? Christ. He lived the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death in the place of sinners like you and I. So it's about him. We're here to exalt him today. And at the same time, it's not like an exception clause, but Jesus says, look, as you're preaching that gospel, remember Mary, remember what she did, commemorate her. It was beautiful. Kalos, in Greek it means good, beautiful, noble, commendable, worthy. So we're talking about Mary today, we're talking about Jesus, and we'll talk about a few other true worshipers so that they can inspire us, so that, so that their legacy can be passed down to us. So three qualities, three qualities of true worship, and quality number one is this, that true worship is Costly. It's costly. You remember in the Old Testament, David was going to offer sacrifice. He's a king and he's wealthy. And he asked for this guy's property to build an an altar on. And the guy says, I give it to you. You're the king. It's yours. And he said, no, I want to buy it from you. And the guy's like, no, you're the king. You're not not buying anything from me. I give it to you. And remember, David said something. He said, I'm not going to offer sacrifice to the Lord unless what? It cost me something. Why? Because that's important to God. Worship ought to be costly. That's what the word sacrifice means. It's costly. It's painful. It's supposed to be that way. Mary's worship was costly in ways you may not see uh, right up front. We're going to talk about the obvious cost. It was three... This, this flask of alabaster ointment came from this rare... Uh, flower in india that you could only get in the himalayan mountains it almost sounds legend like you had to climb this mountain to get this flower to make this perfume to make this ointment and that's why it costs 300 denarii do you know how much that was by the way 300 denarii in the new testament times was an entire year's salary i looked up the medium income uh medium household income am i saying that right for deltona you know what it is Just over $44,000. Now, we're going to get back to this later. So when I say it was costly, duh, obviously, a $44,000 gift for somebody, that's extravagant, isn't it? That sounds, quote-unquote, over the top. But I'm not even going to make that point yet because what's really interesting about this is three different Gospels recorded this. Matthew recorded it, Mark recorded it, and also John recorded this, the apostle of love. And it's really interesting, in John's version, Mary, uh, he he tells us the woman's name, that it was Mary. It was Mary who lived in Bethany, and her sister was Martha, and their brother was who? Lazarus. And you remember what happened to Lazarus? He died. He got sick. He died. He was dead for days. They had a funeral. They buried him in a tomb, and Jesus came and resurrected him. This was his sister, Mary. Mary. So there's probably a lot of reasons she, $44,000, she didn't blink at it. She was so grateful for who Jesus was and for what he did. Um, But in John's gospel, it tells us this was Mary. And it goes even further. Not only did she break this alabaster box or flask, She didn't break it over Jesus' head, by the way, okay? She didn't christen him or anything like that. (laughs) She broke it and and poured all of this uh, beautiful fragrance, and the Bible says that the aroma filled the room, and she anointed his head with it. But in John's gospel, it says that she let her hair down. Now, we don't get this in our culture today. For a woman to let her hair down was a tremendous sign. In fact, those were grounds for divorce for a Jew. Did you know that? If a woman let her hair down, that was such a sign. It was something that was so private that she was only supposed to do in the presence of her home, her family, with her husband. It was a sign of great intimacy and not always sexual, so I don't want you to think that. But it was a great sign of affection and love and intimacy in a personal way. She let her hair down, and not only did she anoint the head of Jesus, she took her hair and she took that nard, not lard, it was nard, okay, and she clean the feet of Jesus. Now, can you imagine that? I don't have hair, but if I did have hair, and if it was long, I don't think I'd be washing uh, somebody's feet in the ancient Near East, okay? Do I need to tell you that 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 was a pretty disgusting... Foot care was pretty disgusting back then, okay? Beyond just, ooh, yuck, your feet smell. It would be disgusting to walk through the streets where the livestock and the cattle and the sheep pretty disgusting. In fact, you couldn't even demand that a servant or a slave do that because it would be considered beneath them. That's why in John chapter 13, when Jesus gets out of basin and starts washing his disciples' feet, they flip out. They're like, no, 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 Peter said, you're not washing my feet. The Son of God is not going to uh, wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part with me. It's interesting. They were so outraged that Jesus was going to do that to them, but I don't remember any of them offering to do it for him. Do you? Nobody. No, that was, that was beneath people's dignity. So this was costly worship. What did it cost her? Her dignity, but she didn't care. She didn't care. She was oblivious. She was oblivious of every single person in that room, the disciples included. She didn't care. This was like heart, genuine, authentic. We're always talking about that word today in culture. That's just, we want to be authentic and we want to be real and we want to be transparent. Man, it doesn't get any more authentic than this. Mary was oblivious to everyone else in that room. It was just her and Jesus. And no gift was, was too much for him. No gift was too much. This was a costly gift. So not only did she give the $44,000 in today's sum, uh, flask of rare expensive ointment oil perfume, she gave him control. Her dignity, she placed it in his hand. And I think worship ought to be costly. And I don't think it cost Americans very much. Um, and I don't preach a whole lot of sermons where I'm wagging my finger at you because I don't, I don't think that's helpful. Usually when you're upset at somebody and you're Taking your resentment and, and your anger to the pulpit, the people that you really want to tell it aren't there anyway. <laughs> but I want, I want to say this, not because I'm angry, just because it's an observation. When Jeff and I planted this church, we went to church plant conferences and we consulted people that have done this for years. And they told us, they said, you will find as your church plant gets started that on any given Sunday, 40% of your regular attenders won't be there. And Jeff and I looked at each other and we were like, <laughs> we're like, they, they, don't, they don't know the kind of church we're going to plant do they? They're like, we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's true of most churches, maybe all churches, but our, ch- our church will be different. And, and here we are in year five. And again, I'm not wagging my finger at you because you're here. You're here. But I want to tell you, we count, we, we, we keep statistics because we should, we want to be good stewards. And I, and I will tell you, I don't know, it's, it's right around the, you know, maybe a little less on any given Sunday, there's 40% of people that, that they're not here. And look, I don't, I don't chase people. I don't go on Facebook and say, well, did they go to Disney? Were they at Disappearing Island? I did the first year, just being honest. I confess it to you. The first year I did, we would... <laughs> and, and it always went this way. Jeff or I would preach, and people would come say, man, that, bro, bro, that sermon changed my life. Like, my entire life has changed. My world was upside down. Now it's right side up. I can't thank you or the Lord enough. This is my church. And the next Sunday, the next Sunday, they would be gone. And back then I was on Facebook, and Jeff, Jeff and I had an office. And I'm like, I'm just being honest with you. I don't care. If this helps you, great. I'd be like, Jeff, dude, look. these people went to the beach, man. And he said, yeah. He said, you didn't see that? I'm like, yeah. And he said, did they talk to you about how much they appreciate? I'm like, yeah. He said, you know, that was, that was Sunday that they, they were at the beach. And I'm like, what the heck, man? What the heck? Now, look, I'm a pastor, so I have to be here. If I wasn't a pastor, I, I got to be honest, there may be, you know, there may be a, a Sunday that I'm like, you know what, man, we really, we really need this. We're tired. We serve our hind ends off. And, and you know, dadgummit, we're going to go to the beach for a day. Um, but it seems like that happens a lot. I'm not, not just a grace Live. It just, that happens a lot. i talk talked to other pastors. It's like in order to even get here, the stars have to line up <laughs> and I'm serious, I'm serious, man. And look, and I get it. I got six kids. You should see our house on Sunday morning. It's like, ah, it really is just getting here in time to serve and to teach and all that. Um, but I'm looking at this and I, the principle, and it's all through the Bible worship ought to be costly, I mean, that's like the base minimum. It's like you gather together on Sunday. I mean, you know what it costs some people in third world countries. And again, I'm not using the argument, eat your food because somebody's starving in another country. It's a privilege to be able to gather together. Like I prayed and not run the risk of getting busted in on by the FBI or the Gestapo and getting shot up, right? Even though there's other threats now in America. But it seems like, man, any... (laughs) The stars have to line up and everything has to be absolutely perfect. We get a full night's sleep. Everyone's dressed on time. And I read this and I'm convicted. It just convicts me. Maybe it convicts you too. But I think worship, it's, it has to be costly. I mean, Jesus is Lord. There's this lordship issue, right? He's our Lord. He's our King. He's not just suggesting that we follow Him. This is God now commands all men everywhere to repent. uh, Jeff used to say this. People say, Jesus is my co-pilot. And my surfer buddy, Jeff, that co-planted with me, he would say, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong chair, bro. (laughs) He's not a co-pilot. He's master. He's king. He's He's not in a cockpit anyway. He's on a throne, right? And he demands worship, but he also deserves worship. That's the difference. For all the other people demanding our allegiance and our loyalty and to follow them and friend them, Jesus is the only one that really, at the end of the day, deserves it. Worship ought to be costly. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. Now, you know, I, I love movies. And uh, one of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. How many people have seen that? 1981, won all kinds of, of awards. And it's, a true, it's based on a true story, most of it's true, uh, about a missionary to China named Eric Liddell. He was a missionary, devoted his entire life to China, but he was also a very gifted athlete at rugby. And turns out he was pretty fast, too. And so he was a Scotsman, and so uh, they recruited him to be in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, and they convinced him to do it. I mean, he could have ran any race, but his fastest race was the 100-meter run, and he was a shoe-in for gold. Everyone knew, like, dude, he's going to break the world record, he's going to bring home gold for Scotland. All hail Eric Liddell, right? And everything was going great until, until he found out that the races were on the Sabbath, that the final heats, the qualifying heats, rather, were on the Sabbath. And he told his coach, and he told his teammates, and he told his countrymen, he said, look, I can't do this. I'm sorry. You know, to him, at least his conviction was, that on the Sabbath, you don't do anything but worship and rest. You don't do any activity. And we would have a lot of us different views on that, and that's okay. But for the purpose of the illustration, that was his personal conviction. That was his worship. He said, I'm not doing it on the Sabbath. And the Prince of Wales argued with him. He said, I don't care. Um, people, called, The media called him unpatriotic. And he said, I don't care. At the end of the day, my loyalty is connected to Jesus Christ, not to you, and I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. If it means I don't get gold, then I don't get gold. I don't care. He made a very costly decision, but check this out. In the movie, you can see this, and this is truly what happened. One of his teammates was moved by his conviction. He said, look, bro, I'm running the 400, uh, and I think maybe the 200. He said, those heats are not on the Sabbath. I know they're not your race. You haven't trained for them, but why don't you run those, and you can keep your conviction and still participate in the Olympics and maybe get a third-place trophy or whatever, bring home bronze. What, is that third-place silver, bronze, whatever? So he said, okay, so uh, he's training for it the best he can, and the day comes where he's about to run the 400 meters. And I don't know why I always get emotional when I I talk about this, but it's a really powerful cinematic piece of movie history. Uh, It shows him at the starting gate, which wouldn't be, if you're about to run, nobody would walk up to you and hand you a a note. But in the movie, he's about to to run, and uh, one of his teammates walks over, I think from the other team, and hands him a note and walks off, and he unfolds it, and it says, it says somewhere in the good book, those who honor me, I will honor them. Good luck. And then he runs the 400 meters, and he breaks the world record. That true true story, that happened. He broke the world record. They said they've never seen anybody run it the pace that he started out with, he finished with. He told his sister Jenny, he said, I run the first, the first 200 meters as hard as I can, and the last 200 I run for God. But he, he, he ran it in 47 seconds, and he brought home gold for his country. And you know what? That was, that was costly, but God honored it. God honors true worship. Now look, don't take this away that you're always gonna hit home runs and kick the field goal, and I'm not saying that, but it's just interesting from his life and legacy that he made a very costly decision that he was going to honor Jesus Christ no matter what. And God honored that, and he won gold for his country. And if you look for pictures of Eric Liddell, the only pictures you're going to find are him running because you know what? He wasn't a showboat. He didn't hang around for the hero worship. He had a talk to give uh, on the Sabbath, and so he went home and prepared. And he didn't even, at the, at the peak of his career, he quit, and he went back to China to be a missionary, and he died in a Japanese prison camp. That's Eric Liddell. That's his legacy. Some of you may not have even heard of him, Right? Right, exactly, because he, he didn't want to be a member. He wanted to, be, he wanted to go back to China and, and devote and spend his life for Christ. True worship is costly. Uh, point two, true worship is perceptive. It's perceptive. Let, let's read the, uh, the middle of the sandwich here. Verse three, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure gnar, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Man, I love that. She love Jesus defending his worshipers. It's almost as if Jesus said... Shut up. Leave her alone. What she's doing is beautiful and it's commendable. And you're not going to take it away from her. Verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Look at verse 8, guys. Check this out. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. i just stop right there for a minute. What? See, I always thought this was the Messiah. This is King Jesus. She's anointing him as a king deserves to be anointed, right? That's what this is. No, that's not what this is. She's not anointing him because he's a king, even though he is a king and he deserves to be anointed. Why is she anointing him? What's it say right here? First, burial. You know, if you, in the ancient Near East, you were anointed for burial because they didn't do embalming fluids like we do today. And they would use spices and fragrances, and it was very costly and expensive. And Jesus says, She's doing this for my death. And you always have poor people with you, and, and you can go and, and minister to them anytime you want, but there is a limited time that she's able to do this, and she recognizes it. Whoa, whoa, so what's he talking about here? Oh, she's been listening, hasn't she? She's been listening to Jesus. Do you remember in Mark's gospel, over and over and over and over, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be uh, killed, I'm going to be be murdered, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be buried, but on the third day I'm going to rise from the grave. And it says they didn't understand it and they were afraid and they didn't ask any questions. And one one of the passages says it offended them. They weren't listening. They didn't get it. They didn't perceive what Jesus was talking about. His entire mission and purpose for coming to the earth went right over their heads, but not hers, not Mary's. Mary was perceptive. Mary got it. She understood Jesus is coming to die for sinners like me. She understood. She was very perceptive, and, and true worshipers are perceptive. They know, I mean, you can't be a true worshiper if you're not because you're not going to have any fuel to worship. This says that this was at the house of Simon um, the leper, verse 4. Now, I don't want to go too far with this, but when, when there's a story recorded in three different places in the Bible, you can take the pieces and like a beautiful tapestry, and you've got a pretty accurate picture at the end of the day. So John tells us this was actually at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house and that it was a feast that was thrown for what Jesus did for Lazarus, Okay. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are throwing this feast. Same event happened in John 12. But here it says while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So what's going on here? This is what I think. This is timeology here. So don't, you know, don't bank your salvation on this. Uh, I think Simon was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And I think he had been a leper, and I think Jesus cleansed him. Because if you were a leper, wasn't nobody having a party at your house back then, okay? (laughs) Wasn't happening. So here's what I think. I think this was a big party for everything that Jesus had done for this family. I mean, the Bible, the Bible says, now, Jesus loved Martha, and Jesus loved Mary, and Jesus loved their brother, Lazarus. I think this family loved Jesus, and I think Mary especially was grateful. I mean, if your brother died and was buried, and Jesus came and rose him up from the grave, you'd be thankful, wouldn't you? And if your dad was a leper, and his life was over, and, and that disease was, was lethal back then and you were banished and cast out if you had it? Would you be grateful if God restored your dad? If, in fact, that's what happened? I think it probably was. She was very, very perceptive as a worshiper. She knew my life would be completely different were it not for, for this man named Jesus who came and radically altered everything. He, he raised my brother from the dead. He, he probably, I think, healed her father of leprosy. And so, yeah, no gift is too extravagant or over the top. True worship is perceptive. And then here's the third point. I really wanted to spend the most time here. Um, We'll make this quick. True worship is provocative. True worship is provocative. What do I mean by that? Man, don't miss this. Whenever true worship is taking place, it's going to elicit a lot of reactions from people. Have you ever noticed that? People say things like, well, let's not get crazy here. You ever heard that? When you're doing something for the name of Christ, for the honor of his kingdom. Because he's worthy, somebody always has to use words like extreme. Well, that's a little radical and that's a little bit extreme, don't you think? Let's not get too crazy. Let's not go too far over the top. Have you heard that? Have you said that before? I've said that before. I don't know. Get crazy here. Everybody in this room has a reaction here. In fact, it's I'm thankful that God wrote the New Testament in Koine Greek, because that is an electric language. And and sometimes English does not do justice to what actually happens, and that's why I'm grateful for Greek. I don't speak Greek, but I did study it in seminary, and, and I can interact with the commentary, because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I need help. But some of the words here, man, they're powerful. Listen to this. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Indignantly. Some of them said indignantly. That re- doesn't really do that justice. They were hacked they were hacked. In fact, whenever that word indignant is used, some of the times it was used was when Jesus on the Sabbath healed a man with a withered hand. You remember that? And it says everybody in the synagogue was indignant. They were angry at Jesus for doing that because that's not how true, that's not how true worship is supposed to happen. And they said, there are six days on which a man may work and be healed. (laughs) Let them come and be healed on that day. Don't don't work on the Sabbath, though. Another time it was used whenever, was whenever little children were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, King, to Jesus. You remember that? And it says that the religious people were indignant. They were angry at Jesus being worshiped by children. That word is always used when Jesus is being worshiped in a way that religious people weren't jiving with. That's what's interesting to me. The people that are indignant are religious people. <laughs> That's usually who the worship elicits the, the, the most provocative response from. They were indignant. But the, the Greek thing goes further here. It says, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her. See, scold just doesn't, that doesn't do it. That's, that's the weakest English word you could use is scold. The word here is actually, there's a picture and it's used for when a bull is charging somebody like a matador and he sees red. And the word is when the, his nostrils flare up and, and like all this gross stuff starts, I don't want to do it because I'll snot to come out. That's the word here. It means to snort in derision and anger. You are highly offended. These people were hacked at what she did. And before, before, before we're too hard on them, remember the denarii, 300 denarii. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have such affection for somebody? And maybe you're living paycheck to paycheck in the ancient Near East, Okay. How many of you have such love for a friend, not a family member, a friend, that you would go out and when you get their birthday present, you would spend an entire year's salary on it? How many people in here would do that? If you did that, what would your friends think? (laughs) Especially if what you gave belonged to them, part of it did, right? I mean, this is an alabaster flask. This was probably a precious heirloom that had been handed down from family to family to family, and it was set aside in case of an economic disaster or a famine or a drought. That was like their hedge fund back then, okay? You didn't have banks back then, or maybe I guess you could bury your gold if you had it, but this was like this family's security. They were banking on this probably in the event that some disaster happened. That's what they would fall back on. And so Mary went and got it, and all her family were like, oh, she's got the family heirloom. And she walks in the room, and they're like, well, okay, it's Jesus. You know, he's, he's done a lot for us. He healed your dad of leprosy, you know, right, dad? And he's like, yeah, he healed me of leprosy. <laughs> and he rose your brother from the grave. His last verse was like, yep, I'm alive. So like, well, let's give him a few drops. And she broke it. Now, back then, they didn't have Ziploc and, uh, <laughs> and Tupperware, okay? When you, broke, when you broke it, that was it. It's gone. Like, all of it. Like, it reminds me of a kid. You, you guys have kids that do that? They go in the kitchen to get something, and there's no, like, drop or a little cup. It's like, you get the whole, to, you know, they dump the whole thing. Mary did this, and it got really tense. And those words, like, everyone in the room is yelling at her. And she's worshiping. She's oblivious. She doesn't care. It's not beneath her to do that. I mean, she's got her hair. Another passage says she's washing, she's using her tears. This is true worship, and it's costly, and it's perceptive, and it's provocative. And you're going to find, my friends, that when you get radical with your worship, the people that it's going to provoke the most are going to be religious people. Mark it down, and you watch and you see. That's been the history of the church, especially when a missionary feels called by God to go. They get derided. You guys have heard all those stories, right? Young man, sit down. When God decides to reach the heathen, he'll do it without your help and without mine. You remember that was said of William Carey? When he used to weep over a leather globe of the world that he made, and when he told his church his plans, they laughed at him. They wouldn't support him, they wouldn't send him. Just really interesting to me. Provocative. True worship is provocative. I want to show you just a few slides here. There's, here's a man named Hudson Taylor. And his parents prayed for Hudson when he was just an infant. They prayed that God would grant him the opportunity to work in China as a missionary. And when he was a teenager, he, d- he gave his life to Christ, and he knew God was calling him to China. So he studied medicine. He studied, uh, is it Mandarin, the Chinese language? He studied that as best he could. And when he was 21 years old he shipped off to China and he stayed there for 51 years. 51 years devoted his life to getting the gospel to the Chinese people. And when he was there, uh, almost immediately, he was unhappy with the other missionaries that were there because he said they were... Let me, let me quote it. Let me have, see if I have a quote here. He said, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Life itself must be even secondary. He felt like a lot of the missionaries that were there, all they were doing was hiring out their English-speaking, Chinese-speaking services to English businessmen. So he got really radical when he went over there. In fact, he did what no Protestant missionary had ever done. He started dressing like a Chinese person. And he started speaking their language and picking up their customs so that he could have inroads for the gospel to reach them. It's really interesting. He wanted to take the Christian faith to the heart of China, and that's exactly what he did. And he left a legacy. He left the legacy. He used to go around and speak to people that wanted to be called into the mission field. And there was a young lady that went and heard him speak once and her life was changed forever. Maybe you've heard of her. Her name is Amy Carmichael. How many people in here have ever heard of Amy Carmichael? Great legacy. You know what she did with her life? She went to India and she spent 55 years in India as a single young lady rescuing, mostly rescuing young ladies from what would amount today to sex trafficking in the Hindu temple system by the priest. She gave her life for that, taking the gospel to those people. She heard, she heard Hudson Taylor talk once, and it, his legacy so moved her that it propelled her out into mission on her own. And she stayed there without furlough for 55 years and ended up writing, I think, 35-something Christian books to help other people grow in their faith. It's amazing. Hudson Taylor impacted her. This is what Hudson Taylor said. It, it, it was interesting. I found a quote floating around that Hudson Taylor supposedly said. He said, if I had 1,000 lives, I would give them all to China. Have you ever heard that quote? That's powerful, isn't it? But that's not what he said. You know what he actually said? This is what he said. If I had 1,000 pounds, and that's, he was British, so that's money. If I had 1,000 pounds, China should have it all. If I had 1,000 lives, China should have them. No, not China. But Christ, that's what he actually said. See, all, all of this, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> all of this was for Christ. All of this was not just for China, not just for souls. This was all for Jesus. That's what propelled Mary. That's what propelled Hudson Taylor. That's what propelled Amy Carmichael, and she spent her life. And you know what? Amy Carmichael left a legacy, and, and her work in India so inspired this couple that they were willing to go to Ecuador. Maybe you've heard of this couple, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. How many people have heard of them? They went to Ecuador, and her husband Jim, along with four other men, were martyred. They were speared to death by the Aka Indians there. And Elizabeth Elliot, along with some of the other wives, ended up going back and devoting their lives to preaching the gospel to the Aka Indians and were able to see them be transformed by the gospel of Christ. That's an amazing, much too, I couldn't tell you all the amazing history. It's a miracle of how God used all those people's lives. But the point is this they all left a legacy. And Jim Elliott said this My mother gave me his diary when I was a brand new Christian. And one of the things that he said in there was, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to obtain what he cannot lose. Worship, true, genuine, authentic worship is costly, it's perceptive, and it's provocative because people thought he was crazy for going over there. They said, you are absolutely nuts. You're giving up everything. And he said, I'm not giving up anything. I'm giving up something that I can't keep anyway, and I'm obtaining something that I can't lose. And isn't that interesting? Every time you find Mary in the New Testament, Jesus is commending her. I just love that. Let's just be honest. If, you, if right now Jesus would walk in here and he would look at your life and he would say, look, people are going to think you're crazy, but I think what you're doing for me is beautiful. And don't, don't let anybody tell you it's a waste. How would that make you feel? <laughs> wouldn't that be over the top for you? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that uh, thrust you into deeper and more radical and sacrificial Christian service? I think it did Mary. Every time you see Mary in the New Testament, she is sitting at the feet of Jesus worshiping him. In fact, there's another time. You remember the story of Martha and Mary? Jesus came to their house. Martha was busy with serving, and she was distracted, and she was troubled. Do you remember this? And she came to Jesus, and she said, Jesus, tell my sister Mary uh, to help me. I'm in the kitchen. I'm cooking. I'm serving, and she won't help me. You remember what Jesus said? He said, Martha, Martha, you are troubled and distracted and anxious about many things. Mary has chosen the best lot, I think the the word used in Greek, she's she's made the best decision. And he said, what she has chosen will not be taken away from her. He says, no, I'm not getting her. I'm not gonna pull her away from worship. That's the best decision. Every time you find Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. She's worshiping and Jesus is commending her. And man, I want that. I want that kind of legacy. Don't you? (laughs) Nothing is too much when the name of Christ is at stake, but it's gonna provoke people. I'll, I'll close with this story. And I don't wanna use names because you would probably know who both of these men are. Uh, I was privy to a conversation by two well-known pastors, uh, and one of them was sharing about an experience he had with the other. He was saying, you know, uh, as you guys know, I love pens. I love collecting pens, and I have quite a collection. That's just always been a hobby of mine. And somebody in my church who, who came to faith under my ministry, and, and, and they have great means they went out and bought this really extravagant pen to thank me for the gospel ministry that I've conducted all these years. And uh, it's, a, it's a really nice pen, really nice pen. It was $10,000, okay? And so this pastor was, was showing it to his other pastor friend who's one of those real like radical, you know, buys his clothes from a thrift shop kind of thing. <laughs> and he told this pastor, he said, if I owned a pen that cost $10,000, I would consider my entire ministry to be a failure. (laughs) And you say, why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that story because our first impressions aren't always right, you know? Somebody bought that pen to show their love and their affection for how Jesus had used this pastor to touch them and to reach them. And the the persecution came from another Christian. (laughs) It's like, look, man, maybe he would have said the same thing to this. It's like, come on i not going to go over the top here. That's extreme. But listen, doesn't the world use words like that for extreme sports? We're okay with that. And they're all on Sunday, aren't they? Extreme sports, extreme health, and get radical with this and radical with that. But when it comes to the cause of Christ, it's like, let's not go crazy. Calm down. And Jesus is like, no. Jesus never said that to anybody. Find a time in the New Testament where Jesus says, hey, calm down a little bit. I mean, look at Zacchaeus. He's like, Lord, Lord, like a little kid. Jesus, I'm going to, if I've extorted anything from anybody, I'm going to restore it fourfold, which was like triple what the law required. (laughs) And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, bless your heart. No, you don't need to do that. That's crazy. He didn't say that. He said, truly, I say to you, salvation has come today to this house, for he is a son of Abraham. Remember that? Jesus, in fact, he used parables like the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, is like a man who found treasure hidden in a field. And for the joy that he had, he buried it and what? Sold everything that he owned, and he went and he bought the field. That sounds radical to me, and Jesus is using it as an example. And then right after that, the pearl of great price. You find this pearl of great price, it's worth everything to you. And everything else in your life fails in comparison. Look, guys, I want to tell you something. Worship is supposed to cost you, and if it's not costing you, you may not be doing it right. <laughs> it can cost you relationships. It should cost you money. I'm not going to preach a, uh, a sermon on tithing. A man called me yesterday, and we were talking about tithing. He said, now, what's the Bible say about tithing? And I said, well, I may have different views than, than, than other Christians on this, but I just just three things. The Bible says you should give cheerfully. The Bible says you, you should give sacrificially. And the Bible says you should give regularly. That's what it says. The tithe principle is more of an Old Testament thing, but if you want to use tithe 10%, I think that's a good place to start. That's my belief. It's a good starting place, because Jesus is worthy of getting our first fruits, the Bible says. That's worship. Giving sacrificially to God is worship, and it should be joyful, and that's why He loves a cheerful giver. And that's the legacy that, that Mary left for all of us. And I just want to close with this. Next week is Fifth Sunday. And on Fifth Sunday, a few things happen. We'll talk a little bit more in the announcements. We meet outside here. We, we cook a meal. It's an opportunity for you to contribute and bring a side item. And now you're all like, I'm going to do it. It's going to cost me out. No, I'm not. I'm not talking about that. Something else that happens is we, we usually conduct baptism services. Do you guys know what baptism is? Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. You know that, right? Baptism is just the declaration that, look, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm not ashamed of it. I don't care who knows. It's one of the ways, it's an ordinance that God left us to say to the world, Jesus is my king. He's my savior. He died for me, and there's, there's nothing that he could ever call me to do that's, that, that's too much or too costly. Um, some of you may not have been baptized, but you've confessed your sins, and you've exercised faith, saving faith in Christ, and you need to be baptized. Jesus commands that all of us um, publicly identify with him, that we're his child, and we're not ashamed, and we're not embarrassed. And if you've not done that yet, uh, talk to me, talk to one of our elders, talk to your community group leader, and let's get that scheduled for you. If, it, if not next Sunday, we can schedule it for the future. The The only thing that we do is we want to hear a clear, uh, a clear understanding and comprehension of the gospel, that you have truly understood who Jesus, who Jesus is, Excuse me, who Jesus is and what he came to do on your behalf, and then we would love to baptize you as part of our church. Um, and here's the final thing: what really fuels all this worship? What fuels it is what God has done for us. He died for us. He he took the punishment that all of us deserve. He was abandoned by his father. That's what you and I deserve. And he adopted us into his family. Brent and Abby Carnathan adopted a beautiful little precious baby. <laughs> the other day, and for the first time ever, I was invited to the courthouse to witness this uh, transaction, and I'm not going to steal your thunder. I know you want to talk about it another time up here, Um, but this is what struck me. There was a whole bunch of people in there, and Jackson's, what, a year and a half? so not really able to discern probably much of what's going on, except all the people he loved are there. They're all dressed up. They're all smiling, and this judge, all dressed up. It's all official. He has a, a gavel, and he's asking Brent and Abby Even asked Jackson, I think, a a question just for procedure. And he's saying, will you love this young man like your son? Man, it's so incredible to hear a judge ask that, right? Will you pledge to love this son and take him into your home and care for his needs? And it was just interesting when the the really official part were kind of the, so to speak, the gavel drops and he says, I now declare you, you know, Jackson Carnathan. And everybody just erupts into applause. And I'm sorry. I'm watching this little boy, and I'm looking at his face, and he's shocked a little bit because it's so loud, and he's got a little toy, and he he drops his toy, and I'm thinking, man, if you knew what just happened, if you could wrap your mind around what just happened to you, buddy, what God has just done for you, and then it hit me. Sorry. It hit me when I was driving home. I'm just like him. I don't fully understand it. If I did... I drop more than a toy. I drop on my face and my knees. I go find a soft spot on the beach where I can get down on my hands and my knees in the sand and say, God, I'm so unworthy to be called your son. But you cleansed me and you died for me and you justified me. And nothing that you ever asked me to do is going to be too costly for me because of that. Sorry, I didn't want to steal your thunder, but let's pray, okay? Lord, thank you so much for adopting us into your family. We were outsiders, all of us. We had no claim to be your child. Nothing that we did could ever commend us to be part of your family. You are the one who made us worthy. You are the one who lived the perfect life and put it on our account, Lord. Lord, Thank you so much for that. I pray we could all wrap our minds around that this morning and it would propel us and thrust us into genuine, heartfelt, authentic worship that the world would sit up and take notice of. Even people would be offended and angry about it because they don't understand, Lord, that that's our identity. And maybe there's some people here and maybe they've been on the other side of of, of this story. Maybe they've been a part of the bread of the sandwich and they've been a Judas or they've been a religious leader and there's there's hypocrisy and there's deceit. And they don't want to worship you. And they get angry when they see anything given to you. Like Judas, they're greedy. And I pray, God, that they would know that does not have to be their legacy. That does not have to be their identity. Part of their story can be there was I, a hypocrite, a deceiver, running in religious circles with my heart not truly in it. And then Jesus changed everything and they became a true worshiper. I pray many a grace life. Lord, that would be their legacy. That would be their story. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this beautiful passage and and the power of the gospel. And I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.